Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. I was asked to present on low-dose naltrexone and the, um, to look at the most the evidence in favour of it. Uh, so when I was given the title, I was thinking, oh God, well, there's not going to be much evidence on low-dose naltrexone. That's going to be a very short talk. But when I went to look up the publications, I was pleasantly surprised. And it was a very useful exercise for me to have done this. So I'm delighted to be giving this, uh, this updated information on uh, naltrexone that I've got no financial interest or arrangement that would be considered a conflict of interest. Uh, update on my family, that's my wife Ivana, and um, we have a new arrival, Patrick, who was born on the 22nd of January. Um, and, uh, uh, and, oh gosh, hopefully that's not me. <laughs> I don't think so. And um, anyway, uh, so when I went looking up the publications for low-dose naltrexone, um, I found that if you put inverted commas and do a PubMed search, you'll get 73 results on low-dose naltrexone itself. So, um, and there are a whole load of different publications regarding uh, the use of low-dose naltrexone for things like pain relief, uh, for uh, helping with opioid, alcohol, and smoking cessa cessation. Uh, for treating fibromyalgia, Crohn's disease in both adults and children, uh, systemic sclerosis uh, as an adjunct for cancer treatment and for multiple sclerosis. So there's quite a number of publications uh, that, that are out there. Um, I've, uh, you don't have to kill yourself taking notes. I, I put a PDF of, the, um, uh, of this talk online at fertilitycare.net under the new treatment strategies and those links actually work. Uh, I tested it this morning, so if you click on that, you'll get the 73 test results. And so if you want to go, to go or, or looking up these studies, you can actually find where they all are. Um, when I looked it up, uh, Nalorex is the brand name of 50 milligrams of naltrexone um, in Ireland. And that links into the Irish Medicines uh, Board uh, website explaining all about naltrexone. And there are a growing uh, number of novel uses for this licensed drug. So time and time and time again, uh, since I started using naltrexone, uh, people would say, oh, but it's unlicensed. And I'd like to remind everybody, actually, this is a licensed drug. It has got, gone through all of the hoops, and it is licensed. And, uh, but there's nothing published on low-dose naltrexone as a treatment for infertility, miscarriage, PMS, or pregnancy in the low-dose. Uh, but on high-dose naltrexone, there's, there's quite a few publications. Um, so it's licensed to be used at between 50 to 150 milligrams uh, per, uh, uh, per day. It was first synthesized actually in the 1960s, has been licensed for use in the United States since 1985 and in Ireland since 1991 as an adjunctive treatment of opioid dependence. And now it's also being used as a treatment for al alcohol dependence, which I put in brackets is an unlicensed use for it. Um, um, and it's a, it works by competitive inhibition of opioid receptors, both centrally and peripherally. So it's important to note that it has central and peripheral action. Uh, special uh, warnings and precautions for use. Uh, uh, there are adverse reactions if you take it with opioids. Um, so if you're on a morphine-based medication, you take naltrexone at the same time, it's not pretty. Don't ever do it or recommend it to anybody. They'll vomit for hours. So you have to be very careful uh, not to mix it with an opioid uh, at the same time. 
Um, uh, you should confirm normal kidney and liver function before taking it. And some elderly patients taking a dose of 300 milligrams developed transient abnormal liver function tests. Um, uh, but there's no evidence of toxicity in uh, younger volunteers taking up to 800 milligrams per day for up to seven days. So it's a pretty safe drug e even in high doses. Um, and as a licensed drug, prolonged use of the 50 milligram uh, dose is acceptable and the duration of treatment for that has not been defined, so it can be taken indefinitely. Uh, quantity matters. There's a huge difference between one glass of wine or one glass of wine or even uh, a, a glass of wine and a crate of wine. Uh, so where one glass is good for you, a crate of wine uh, probably isn't. Um, and uh, so the dose makes a big difference as well. And bear in mind, the quantities that we're using, we're using less than uh, one-tenth of the licensed dose uh, when we use low-dose naltrexone. So uh, if it's safe at 50 milligrams, it must be super safe at 4.5 milligrams. I've never seen anybody develop abnormal liver function tests on a dose of 4.5 milligrams. So in my view, in clinical practice, I don't think it's necessary to monitor liver function when you're using low-dose naltrexone. But again, don't ever mix it with opioids. The animal studies uh, don't suggest a teratogenic effect uh, for, for use um, during pregnancy, but there's no uh, experience of using uh, naltrexone during pregnancy, at least that's, that's published. And the drug should only be used in pregnancy um, uh, if considered necessary by the physician. So it's great to have that kind of caveat because a lot of the time the physician, at least this physician, does consider it necessary and helpful, especially at the real low dose. But bear in mind, there aren't good published studies to back that up. It's clinical experience that we're going on with this. Uh, naltrexone has few, if any, intrinsic actions besides its opioid-blocking properties. Uh, it's typically absorbed uh, and reaches peak levels after about an hour, and its half-life is four hours. So every four hours, uh, the concentration is of half again of what it used to be, so it's eliminated uh, pretty quickly from the body. I, I did a search on just naltrexone and infertility on PubMed, and I found 10 publications, uh, and this is using high-dose naltrexone and infertility. And uh, one from 2012 uh, from a, a journal of steroids uh, was the medical management of metabolic dysfunction in polycystic ovaries. And it showed that naltrexone reduces appetite and modulates insulin release. And its use in polycystic ovaries may be that it, it, it works on uh, reducing hyperinsulinemia, uh, which is beneficial when you're trying to encourage ovulation. Um, and this other effect is uh, from this Journal of Endocrinology um, in 2001 from the Sacred Heart University in Rome. And uh, this showed that the naltrexone has an effect on the pulsatile release of the GnRH uh, to improve ovulation induction in polycystic ovaries. And this is where uh, you might be familiar with uh, where the, you use pulsatile GnRH every 60, 90, and 120 minutes, and it, it's pumped through an infusion pump. Um, and that uh, women who take the naltrexone do better uh, if they add naltrexone with the GnRH, uh, with polycystic ovaries. Uh, this one is interesting from Human Reproduction in 1997, and um, uh, this is one from your more ordinary thing that you would be working with, uh, where you get successful ovulation induction, uh, and it's a bit of a mouthful, in nor normogonadotrophic clomiphene-resistant anovulatory women. So... <laughs> Basically, it's where she doesn't ovulate with Clomid, and uh, you've used uh, 150 milligrams daily for five days, and you're trying to encourage ovulation, and you're not getting an ovulatory response. 
So for these women, if you add high-dose naltrexone, uh, you'll actually get a really good ovulation response uh, for lots of these. Now, in this paper, uh, this is a, a Dutch paper by um, uh, Rosenberg in, in 1997 and published in Human Reproduction, uh, they didn't break it into whether they had polycystic ovaries or not. They didn't specify the diagnosis, just that they were anovulatory. But a good number of them, I expect, would have been polycystic ovaries. Uh, there were 22 patients that were clomiphene resistant, um, and uh, they were treated with naltrexone either alone or in combination with Clomid. So what they did was they added the naltrexone um, at 50 milligrams, 25 milligrams twice daily is what they gave. And um, some women started to spontaneously ovulate just with that alone. And uh, out of the 22 patients that were treated in this paper, 19 uh, of the patients uh, ovulated according to their criteria and uh, started to get a regular menstrual cycle. 12 out of those 19 uh, achieved a singleton pregnancy and two of those miscarried, so they had 10 successful uh, pregnancies out of it. So, um, uh, and the, the goal of, of treatment with naltrexone was to achieve a complete opioid blockade uh, in order to treat hypothalamic inhibition of the GnRH from excessively high endorphins. So again, that's a mouthful. But it just means that um, there was too, too much endorphin stimulation, too much natural endorphin stimulation uh, in these women. And the goal was you need to block this excessive endorphin production with naltrexone twice daily. And if you do that and drop the endorphin levels to a more normal range, then that has a positive effect on the hypothalamus, allowing it to start uh, beginning the whole cycle of ovulation. Um, and uh, 18 out of the 22 women did need Clomid, but four out of the 22 ovulated just with naltrexone on its own, which I was quite surprised at. And they continued the treatment for just six cycles. Now, relative to what we're doing with the NAPRO technology approach, I think if we had that same population, did the high-dose naltrexone and all the other things we do with NAPRO technology, we get a much higher uh, number than, than what they got here. Um, uh, and then human reproduction in 1993, uh, they did treatment with naltrexone and hy uh, hypothalamic ovarian failure, uh, induction of ovulation and pregnancy, and this is from a, a group in Germany treating 66 women with various grades of hypothalamic ovarian failure, and they got normalization of cycles uh, in 49 uh, of, of the 66 women, and uh, they achieved 18 pregnancies. And again, demonstrating high-dose naltrexone reduces the effect of excessive opioids, freeing the hypothalamus to uh, improve uh, the whole ovulation cascade. So this appears to be a different mechanism of action compared to low dose of naltrexone, um, uh, which is, um, and it's worth considering this high dose, uh, which I'd have to put up my hand and say, you know what, I hardly ever, in fact, never, maybe except for once, have used high dose naltrexone, and the one patient I used it on didn't work very well. Uh, but having reviewed the literature and certainly the result of that study, it's something I'm quite interested in, in considering, especially for clomiphene-resistant patients uh, with polycystic ovaries, and apparently extremes of weight, if you're uh, overweight or underweight, you often get high um, opioid tone and excessive endorphin production, and that benefits, and also highly stressed situations. So this is a treatment for excessive uh, um, opioids or excessive endorphins. So, um, and in addition to the, its effect on improving GnRH pulse frequency, that it reduces insulin resistance, which is this added benefit for, um, for polycystic ovaries. 
So I did the PubMed search, naltrexone and pregnancy uh, for doses of up to 150 milligrams. Naltrexone is safe for most adults, except for pregnant women uh, or nursing women. So uh, again, just to emphasize that uh, there's nothing published in the literature other than our own clinical experience of the benefits of naltrexone during pregnancy. The PMS study really interested me quite a bit because this is from the Mayo Clinic, and uh, this was in 1988. And they looked at a clinical trial of naltrexone in premenstrual syndrome. And what they demonstrated before the study was, back in the day when you could measure endorphin levels, uh, they showed that in the luteal phase, women with premenstrual syndrome uh, had a significant deficiency of endorphins uh, in the luteal phase of the cycle. So uh, the bottom graph there shows the women with premenstrual syndrome and their endorphin levels relative to women who didn't have premenstrual syndrome in the white boxes, um, uh, showing that there's a significant difference between the two. So the thinking is, if there's something you could do to encourage endorphin production, uh, that this surely would help with premenstrual syndrome. This was 20 women. It was a double-blind, placebo-controlled crossover study using naltrexone 50 milligrams only on days 9 to 18 of the cycle. So they only took uh, the naltrexone for 10 days of the cycle. Uh, and <clears throat> they used this menstrual distress questionnaire. Um, and the, the mean scores of the, um, uh, of the, uh, with the menstrual distress questionnaire, the mean scores dropped 28 points, showing that they got a benefit from this. Um, but the intention was, after the 10 days of taking naltrexone from days 9 to 18 of the cycle, you stop the naltrexone and the hope would be that the body would respond to this and start increasing its own uh, endorphin production. So this was an attempt to encourage endorphin production through temporarily blocking the opi opioid receptors with naltrexone, at, at high dose naltrexone. Um, and I think it's not a very good way of doing it compared to what we've discovered since with low dose naltrexone, but even despite uh, what I think isn't a very efficient way of using naltrexone to, to encourage endorphin production, they still got a benefit and an improvement in premenstrual symptoms. So the naltrexone in, in, in this treated group alleviated many premenstrual symptoms and may be an effective treatment for PMS given in this, what I think is a, a very strange way. But they had problems because of the high dose, things like nausea, decreased appetite, and, and dizziness. Um, Looking at naltrexone, when I was first using it, I thought it's about your endorphins, uh, beta endorphins, you block the receptors and, uh, and, um, and that gives the effect. But then uh, I went looking up a bit in, in the textbook um, and um, th th there's so much information in the textbook, it's great. And this was uh, quite an eye-opener as well, but uh, the uh, endorphins are one of three endogenous opioid peptides. There's also your enkephalins and your dynorphins. In addition to that, there isn't just one receptor, there's about five different receptors, and naltrexone blocks all of these receptors to varying degrees. And um, the mechanism of action, oh, don't tell me I've lost that one, did I? No, I might have to go back to that again. But one of its mechanisms of action is uh, that when you actually block these um, uh, multiple opioid peptide receptors, it has multiple different effects, one of which is to regulate the immune system, um, which is, is a whole thing we'll be looking at in just a minute. But it, you get multiple effects uh, that are often beneficial um, from, uh, from using low-dose naltrexone, that it has a, a balancing effect on these receptors. Um, so I know I'm not explaining that very well, but I, I think I might have a slide later that does that. 
Um, so the idea of naltrexone uh, in, in low dose is this idea of antagonism and then rebound uh, increase of, of, uh, of the endorphins. So if you consider letrozole, for example, or clomiphene, that we achieve ovulation induction and subsequent increase in estrogen production by temporarily blocking estrogen uh, receptors. And the suppression of estrogen production through um, either Clomid or naltrexone, but uh, say if, it's, uh, if you're using the, excuse me, suppression of estrogen production using letrozole, it blocks the production of estrogen. And um, if you do this every day, it'll give a total blockade of your estrogen and estrogen levels drop. So the same drug will have a completely different effect depending on how it's used. So if you consider naltrexone, uh, if you hope to get an increase in, of endorphin production, if you take 25 milligrams twice daily for 10 days, the hope was you get a rebound increase in beta endorphins. And, uh, but it's different than the effect of total suppression of endorphin production by taking 25 milligrams twice daily continuously, and that'll give a total drop in endorphins. And there are clinical benefits from dropping endorphins as well as stimulating them. But now consider low-dose naltrexone. If we give 3 to 4.5 milligrams every night, uh, naltrexone has a daily circadian rhythm, and if you briefly and temporarily block the endorphin receptors at night, it triggers a rebound stimulation of endorphin production the very next day. So rather than a monthly cycle, it has actually a daily cycle. And uh, Bernard Bahari showed you can get a three to four-fold increase of beta endorphin production uh, by taking naltrexone in this way as a low dose. Uh, Professor Jill Smith showed you get a 12 to 15-fold increase in enkephalin levels uh, by taking low-dose naltrexone in this way, which would be vastly superior to naltrexone 25 milligrams twice daily for 10 days from days 9 to 18 of your cycle. It is our hope uh, through the uh, Institute for Restorative Reproductive Medicine that we may duplicate that trial from the Mayo Clinic uh, uh, where we give naltrexone 3 to 4.5 milligrams at night, so interested doctors, uh, please contact us. And our expectation is we'll get a much higher level of endorphin production and a much more profound beneficial effect on premenstrual syndrome. Clinically, we see it working about 80% of the time. So if I get a patient starting for the first time and they've got premenstrual symptoms and they haven't even yet started charting, I put them on naltrexone straight away. And when they come back with their chart and their blood results uh, two and a half or three months later, um, their PMS is gone eight times out of 10, just naltrexone on its own. And many people would be very dramatic about it and say, I've got my life back, I'm me again. It can be that profound. Now, it's not 100% uh, because there are other reasons uh, for the naltrexone, but at, uh, for PMS other than naltrexone, but naltrexone at a low dose through endorphin stimulation has a real beneficial effect. So this is based on our clinical experience, and we want to move it to the next level to get uh, hard published data uh, to convince our peers that this is something simple that a lot of people should consider doing. So... This low-dose naltrexone is new uses of an old drug, and there's a website, lowdosenaltrexone.org, uh, that very much articulates this proposed different mechanism of action, whereby naltrexone temporarily and briefly blocks opioid receptors, triggering this rebound increase in endogenous opioid production. And this has multiple beneficial effects for what I would call endorphin-deficient patients. Uh, there was another interesting paper from Fertility and Sterility in 1990 um, uh, looking at current concepts of beta-endorphin physiology in female reproductive dysfunction. And in this paper from Yale, uh, they documented um, uh, different clinical effects uh, of high versus low endorphins. 
and that uh, it was recognized in this paper that elevated or high levels of beta endorphins are associated with exercise uh, associated amenorrhea, with stress associated amenorrhea and polycystic ovaries. And, um, and this, I think, is, is, is one of the, is the, 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 what Dr. Hildres was doing with high-dose naltrexone uh, for treating a lot of people beneficially with a higher dose. And what we've been doing a bit differently in Galway is looking at the low dose um, of, of uh, beta endorphin levels are associated with PMS, uh, early menopause, um, and uh, Dr. Hildres has also demonstrated that low endorphin levels are associated with uh, endometriosis. And clinically, we find patients with endometriosis benefit hugely from low-dose naltrexone as well. And this is from the textbook as well, looking at normal fertility controls versus infertility with endometriosis and looking at beta endorphin levels compared from the two groups. And you can see women with endometriosis, their endorphin levels are about half of what the normal population endorphin levels should be. So straight away, they would be potentially good candidates for low-dose naltrexone treatment. And in clinical practice, we'd observe uh, a lot of relief of the negative symptoms associated with endometriosis by giving low-dose naltrexone. And where it gets a little tricky is 50% of women with polycystic ovaries also have uh, endometriosis. So if a woman has polycystic ovaries, do you give her high-dose naltrexone or do you give her low-dose naltrexone? Because I think it, it could be argued you can give both. Now, from my clinical experience, I've been using low-dose naltrexone in this group uh, with, with very good effect. But there are some people who have been resistant, and now with greater insight, those that aren't responding so well, I'd very much like to move to high-dose naltrexone. But uh, for me, I'd probably start with low-dose naltrexone because there is this association with endometriosis and polycystic ovaries. So I don't think it's a case when we're looking at uh, trying to decide treatment strategies with naltrexone. Do we use high-dose naltrexone or do we use low-dose? I think we could use both one and the other, and we tailor it according to our patient's needs. So endorphin stimulation and its immune-modifying effect, uh, it has intestinal effects, it has local effects, it has central effects, uh, it has mood enhancement effects, and it improves energy levels. So this regarding the mechanism of action is from Professor Jill Smith. And if you click on the link here, if you, if you look at this later on, you can get an audio presentation from Professor Jill Smith. It's from a conference that I attended. Um, it was in... Um, in the National Institutes for Health in 2006, I think. And she explains in detail how the naltrexone works. But it reduces um, local effects. It reduces pro-inflammatory cytokines, uh, influencing interleukin 2, 6, and 12, and also tumor necrosis factor alpha and gamma interferons. So these are local effects. And it, it exerts this effect um, uh, by um, by its impact on these opioid receptors. Exactly how it does it, we don't fully know, but we do know that if you, uh, if you take low-dose naltrexone, it reduces these pro-inflammatory cytokines through, through the opioid uh, inhibition, uh, temporary inhibition and subsequent stimulation of these uh, opioids. Um, so, because these, these pro-inflammatory cytokines uh, they, they cause inflammation uh, from white blood cells and macrophages being attracted uh, to where the interleukins and TNF-alpha uh, are, are being released. 
So the naltrexone influences uh, these receptors locally, but it also has a central effect. So it's not just that local effect, because it also has an effect centrally and giving a 12 to 15-fold increase in these metencephalins. Now, Professor Jill Smith is a professor of gastroenterology, and one of her main interests is using low-dose naltrexone for inflammatory bowel disease, specifically Crohn's disease. And this is a picture of before and after, and this is just four weeks of naltrexone, 4.5 milligrams. So, uh, and on, uh, on picture A, you get this red, angry, inflamed uh, bowel, and uh, this is four weeks of naltrexone, 4.5 milligrams. This is her pilot study that she presented in 2006, demonstrating the effectiveness of low-dose naltrexone for inflammatory bowel disease for Crohn's. And she didn't know, did it exert its effect through local effects, reducing pro-inflammatory cytokines, or was it a central effect? But whatever way it's working by, the patient is really happy. And in this pilot study, um, I'll show you the figures for it, um, it showed an 89% improvement in Crohn's disease. And this is 4.5 milligrams of naltrexone uh, in 17 patients. 67% uh, of these patients went into remission and 70% of those patients had previously failed TNF-alpha inhibitor uh, infleximab or Remicade. So this is the, the, these are the end-of-the-line people who had really tried everything else. It was a real difficult population, and she got a stunning result from it. Um, and there's a huge cost factor, uh, massive, massive cost saving in the drugs bu budget. Uh, depending on, on what you look up, you'd find an average of about $5,000 per infusion of Remicade, which has to be given repeatedly for Crohn's disease versus between $30 to $50 a month for low-dose naltrexone. The people who make low-dose naltrexone won't take you out for dinner, though. <laughs> so it's probably placebo. Uh, this is too good to be true. Really, you can't believe just a pilot study. Uh, you, you need a randomized placebo-controlled trial. So all the usual uh, things that are, are, are brought out uh, that you can't really consider this. So Professor Smith does a placebo-controlled, a placebo-controlled, randomized placebo-controlled trial. And her first publication, by the way, was in the American Journal of Gastroenterology um, in two, oh, it was 2007. And her next publication was in uh, Digestive Diseases and Sciences, which I'm sure you've all heard of. Um, and, um, and in this paper, uh, she looked at the effects of low-dose naltrexone. She treated 40 patients for 12 weeks. Uh, there was an 88% clinical response rate compared to a 40% response in the placebo group. There's a 78% endoscopic response uh, compared to 28% in the placebo group, and these are all uh, strongly statistically significant. And 33% went into remission compared to 6% that went into remission in the placebo group. So naltrexone improves clinical and inflammatory activity of subjects with moderate to severe Crohn's disease compared to placebo-treated controls. This is a cracking good study by a professor of gastroenterology from Penn State University and it's in a peer-reviewed uh, scientific journal. Uh, she even got histological evidence to show this, um, looking at the restoration of the glandular stroma on D1 at the bottom right-hand corner, compared to the placebo effect, you get a whole restoration of normal histological function. So for the physicians who could appreciate that, this is, this is phenomenal. And she said it's uh, histological proof as well as direct visualization. She also got the histological slides and biopsies. Uh, 
Um, so revenue and politics influence the decision regarding publications, forcing an editor to, to resign. So that has to be cause for concern because there are many gastroenterologists who don't read uh, digestive diseases and sciences uh, that would read the uh, New England Journal of Medicine. And even if you are a professor from a university and you get a randomized placebo-controlled trial, how difficult is it to get in a high-impact journal to convince other physicians that there's a better way rather than the hugely expensive medical way of, um, of trying to, uh, to, to treat this? But for me, uh, this low-dose naltrexone has now been proven to my mind. Now, she is going for phase three trials because the critics can actually pull some holes in that study so that she's in process of failed three trials, phase three trials to make it incontrovertible. But to me already, I'm very satisfied from my personal clinical experience and now this placebo-controlled trial that this is a potent immune-modifying treatment. So it is not just an opioid receptor antagonist for treating uh, opioid addiction. It is now proven in a placebo-controlled trial to be a potent immune modifier. So it moves it for me from the, the realm of an experimental immune modifier to one that's been published um, in, in a very responsible way. And there are ongoing trials continuing as well. I started prescribing this uh, in 2004. And for me, it's one piece of the, of the jigsaw for the fertility conundrum that we, we encounter. And for me, low-dose naltrexone plays an important part. It's part of our whole multifactorial approach. Um, um, and, and you could see the whole list of things that we look at. Naltrexone is one part of that, but it's a very important part of it. <laughs> at this point, up to 50% of patients that I treat in my practice receive low-dose naltrexone. And um, my clinical experience from it, I have to say, has been extremely positive. Now, it's not the, the perfect drug for everybody. Some people take it and say it's the worst drug I ever took. Uh, they feel horrible side effects from it. And that's because they weren't endorphin deficient in the first place. And I send their endorphins into overdrive and they get a whole load of side effects and they're not happy. So you try and judge clinically because we can't do a blood test to measure endorphins. So we try and judge clinically who's likely to benefit from it. But the majority of people I put on it uh, do respond well. Also, there are non-responders. There are people with autoimmune conditions of one sort or another that are completely resistant to naltrexone, but that's about 20% of the time. Clinically, eight times out of 10, the vast array of autoimmune conditions that there are, eight times out of 10, they, they respond favorably. Um, and I have given it safely during pregnancy, following Dr. Hilder's advice, because he was giving 50 to 100 milligrams during pregnancy. So when I approached him way back uh, whenever and said I was thinking of giving uh, 4.5 milligrams, he laughed and he said, I'm giving 100 milligrams, so. <laughs> um, and, and safely. And uh, the first few babies that I treated with it, um, one of which was my, my own, um, uh, were, were, were quite light. And I thought, oh my goodness, the baby was very light, that I have something to do with the treatment I gave. So I got reassurance from Dr. Hilders that there's no uh, negative impact uh, on birth weight. If, if, if anything, my experience has shown that it normalizes the birth, birth weight. Uh, I had an identical twin. Um, uh, herself and her sister were pregnant at the same time. She stayed on low-dose naltrexone. Her sister, who went elsewhere, didn't. Her sister had a great big oversized baby and needed a cesarean section. Where, uh, the uh, woman on the low-dose naltrexone had a normal weight baby. So I was thinking, gosh, maybe the low-dose naltrexone, even at that low dose, has a, a positive impact on modifying insulin resistance as well, that maybe you don't have to go to the high dose as well. So we don't know everything about it by a long shot, but clinically it works an absolute treat. Uh, to judge clinical endorphin deficiency, uh, I've got a, eight criteria that I look for. 
So typically, I'd like people to have two or more of these, but if you have a personal history of autoimmunity, you just need one condition. If you have profound fatigue, uh, even that will do. But the majority of people that I would see would have uh, quite a few of these, uh, eight uh, different points. I've put these on a brochure that's on our website at fertilitycare.net. If you go to the new treatments uh, strategies, the brochure is there right beside the PowerPoint presentation, so you can't miss it. So, uh, and you, I, you can print it off and use it uh, if, if it's useful to you. I, and I just give people this sheet and I go through it with them and we see which ones are relevant. And after they take the treatment, I say, well, how are you getting on in these areas? And people would say, my energy that was like two or three out of 10, now I'm a seven. Uh, my PMS that was there for seven or 10 days, now it's only two days. Its severity was like nine out of 10, now it's down to one or two out of 10. So it's, uh, and brown bleeding, it can help with that. Um, uh, endometriosis, what I didn't appreciate was, it can get rid of dysmenorrhea. Uh, you reduce the pro-inflammatory cytokines in the pelvis, uh, you reduce the inflammation that's there, and then pain is reduced very significantly in a lot of women with endometriosis. So that's the link to the brochure as well, in case you can't find it, you just, well, anyway. Uh, the side effects, um, you, you can get vivid dreams, sleep disturbance, nausea, headache, dry mouth uh, for about two weeks, um, uh, but over 90%, 95% of couples would say that uh, it's, it's acceptable and the side effects are usually transient and they disappear. Drug interactions, you don't mix it with codeine or morphine. And uh, if you have more than two alcoholic beverages, you get a whopping hangover the next day. So if you're going to a party and you have to have a few drinks, leave out your naltrexone that night. Uh, it is safe to combine with steroids. Initially, we didn't combine it with steroids, but now we do, uh, courtesy of Professor Smith, uh, who showed that there was no problem combining with steroids and was still hugely effective. Uh, typically, I recommend you stop it a day or two before surgery and resume it whenever you finish pain relief after surgery. And that's it. So know about the few side effects, know about the drug interactions, um, and, uh, and that's all you really you need to know, and you're good to go. Uh, it is a licensed drug at 50 milligrams for a different indication for treating drug addiction, but there are a growing number of publications at the LDN website uh, for uh, these things of MS, Crohn's disease, and fibromyalgia. And at this point, it is, to my mind now, a proven potent immune-modifying treatment through a, a double-blinded uh, randomized placebo-controlled trial. You give it at three to 4.5 milligrams at night. It needs to be specially compounded because it needs to be fast release preparation. You don't want to mix it with lactose or calcium carbonate filler. Um, so Avacel is, is one of the fillers that seems to work very well, a microcrystalline filler. So that's for the compounding pharma so that it's made as a, as a fast release preparation. A lot of the suppliers who make Naltrex in the right way are listed on the, on the website. And I'm just gonna look at some cases. Uh, this is somebody uh, KC, who had three previous uh, failed IVF cycles. Uh, she did conceive once and miscarried, had five years of infertility. Uh, she was aged 38, had mild endometriosis, 12 previous failed cycles of Clomid, three failed attempts at IUI, and three failed attempts at IVF. So uh, a challenging history. Um, in addition, there was a male factor, uh, but as part of the overall picture, she had significant and to my mind, profound clinical endorphin deficiency. She would have fitted seven out of the eight criteria on our list, and she would have been at the high end of the scale of feeling really awful on it. Um, so I won't go through all the details of everything we did because the focus here is for the endorphins, but that was her abnormal fertility care charting uh, pattern in advance. So straight away, even before this couple would attempt to conceive for the first time, 
a well-trained fertility care teacher practitioner can turn to her and say, it looks like you're going to have difficulty with your fertility, you have an abnormal charting pattern, you should see a NAPRO doc and get that sorted even before you attempt conception. And the purpose of that is uh, so that you speed the time to infertility evaluation, but also reduce the risk of miscarriage, ectopic pregnancy, premature delivery, all reduced by taking care of your cycle with the best uh, preconceptual care that you can give. Rather, unfortunately, because she didn't experience the benefits of the Creighton Model Fertility Care Charting System in advance, um, she went through all the trauma of all the things that she did and eventually, coming the other side of all the treatments, uh, finally presented for NAPRO treatment. So her, her significant clinical endorphin deficiency, if I didn't treat that, I'm not convinced we would have got a successful outcome. I think it was a key component for this woman. Uh, we also found food intolerance. We found endometriosis that was treated surgically. We had a male factor that needed to be treated. Um, and we had hormone dysfunction that needed to be treated with follicular stimulation and, and luteal phase support with HCG. But with a combination of the multifactorial approach with NAPRA technology, uh, we restored a normal pattern to her chart, but also clinically she felt well. Um, and, um, and then we achieved our positive test. But a key thing for us is get you healthy, get you happy, get a normal appearance to your chart with optimum hormones and proven follicle rupture by ultrasound. So when we had everything in place, then we said, now you can stop trying to conceive and let's hope that it happens. And what we mean by that is uh, the fertile days come and go, you enjoy each other's company and you see what happens. You don't try to get pregnant, uh, you love each other. Uh, so they did a positive pregnancy test and I continued cyclogest for the first 14 weeks but naltrexone right throughout her pregnancy uh, because she, she, had, uh, she had profound significant endorphin deficiency. And in the past I have found if I did stop naltrexone during pregnancy, our pregnancy outcomes weren't so great because they returned to being endorphin deficient during the pregnancy. All the negative symptoms would come back and that would be an unfavorable environment physiologically for both mom and baby. So they had a baby boy and um, uh, normal vaginal delivery, a good weight. Um, I presented this uh, obviously in Europe because it's in kilograms, but it's a good about seven pounds, seven ounces. And, um, and mom, when mom was 40 years old, and then she came back for a second attempt and we did the same treatment approach and she conceived uh, successfully the following September and had a second uh, healthy baby boy delivered when she was aged 42. And in, in her case, we continued naltrexone throughout the pregnancy because of the clinical benefits that it brought to her. But when she came back wanting to conceive baby number two, she had the first baby with her who was about nine months old, and they could not get over how good and healthy this baby was. He was a good eater, he was a good sleeper, he was happy, he was content, he was hardly ever sick. And I would attribute those benefits to giving naltrexone throughout the pregnancy. Uh, that it's transmitted to baby, it's not just neutral, it's positively beneficial for both mum and baby. And it's a thing that I've heard in clinical practice repeatedly from patients who've taken naltrexone throughout uh, how good their kids are afterwards, um, uh, which is great to see. And I've treated at this point over 200 uh, pregnancies with naltrexone, and I would say it's not just neutral, it's positively beneficial. Another case of six recurrent miscarriages uh, presented back in 2005, uh, before I was really using uh, much naltrexone. I, I started it uh, gingerly in 2004 for occasional situations, but I wasn't using it for her. But this woman, uh, she had six miscarriages um, and um, ranging from five to nine weeks gestation. She was found to have a balanced translocation between chromosomes seven and 18, indicating she should have a 30% risk of miscarriage each time with a 5% risk of a birth defect uh, if baby didn't miscarry. Um, but she figured, well, out of six goes, they should have had at least one. 
and that there must have been something else going on. And I tended to agree with her. Uh, she did have a uterine fibroid as well, uh, which is uh, two of them, uh, both um, three centimeters in size. Uh, she had normal clotting studies, normal day 21 progesterones, and unexplained why she had six miscarriages. But she had an abnormal charting pattern, suboptimal um, uh, hormone levels. Uh, she also had moderate premenstrual symptoms for a whole week and abnormal bleeding and low hormones. And I was wondering, is there some immune factor here as well? And again, it was pre-naltrexone days. So um, uh, now, at that time, uh, I put her, did I skip something there? Oh, I'm using Femara much longer than I thought. So <laughs> at that time, I put her on Femara, letrozole, but at that time, I was giving it for five days, one a day for five days with luteal HCG. And we normalized her hormones. I much prefer, uh, with Dr. Hildred's advice, to give the, the Femara or letrozole as a single dose on day three or four of the cycle rather than spreading it out because um, if you give it as a single dose, it has a less negative effect on estradiol levels on peak plus seven. But in her case, her estradiol levels were okay, so she could tolerate it that way. But most women would benefit from all in one day. So she got her positive test in her third cycle of treatment, which in itself isn't a huge uh, success because she's done that six times before. So we're worried, and we say, well, we're going to give you, at that time I was giving intramuscular progesterone, 200 milligrams IM twice weekly. I also gave her HCG um, twice weekly and prednisolone, uh, five milligrams daily for some, I just added prednisolone um, uh, because of a concern of maybe some immune factor there. And sure enough, we struggled with her pregnancy. And if you can see from the graph that her progesterone levels were low right throughout the entire pregnancy, we had to keep her on hormone support right throughout the pregnancy as well. Uh, so painful intramuscular injections throughout. Um, and um, as time went on, the pregnancy progressed. And we stopped treatment at 35 weeks, which in retrospect was probably a bit of a mistake because two weeks later, she delivers and baby is five pounds, five ounces and mum and baby were well, and I'd say if I gave the hormone support for longer, uh, but again, 37 weeks was fine. Um, it's not considered premature if you go 37 weeks, but I'd say she might have benefited from maybe going a little bit longer, but I think there was placental insufficiency there uh, when baby was five pounds, five ounces at that uh, stage of gestation. She returned for another attempt, um, and at this time then I said, well, I'm doing something new now with low-dose Naltrex, and I'd like to see how you get on with that instead because I think you're a good candidate for it. You have the uh, criteria for clinical endorphin deficiency. I think you'll feel a whole lot better. And my hope is uh, that the previous problems that you needed all that hormone support throughout pregnancy and you had a smaller baby, I think they won't be as significant if we have you on low-dose Naltrexone. So uh, we went for that uh, for her. And uh, we hoped she'd have a bigger baby, better progesterone levels, and she did. Uh, her progesterone levels were quite a bit better. This time I was using cyclogest vaginal progesterone instead of uh, the injection. So I wasn't using HCG and I wasn't using intramuscular progesterone. I was using vaginal pessaries of cyclogest, which is an oily-based pessary that gets absorbed. And we found we got real good levels with that. And it was more acceptable to her as well And um, compared to where we had been before. And uh, she had a seven pound, three ounce uh, baby girl full term. And, um, and everything went perfectly well for the pregnancy. So uh, the naltrexone worked to treat. And uh, so it was from clinical experience of things like that uh, that I, I, um, I, I, I continued to use more and more naltrexone. And wait, let me see now, I don't need all of this. Just to briefly mention um, uh, that there's a useful book that my sister had written, and she was one of the triggers to get me to start using low-dose naltrexone because 
Uh, her neurologist in New York had recommended low-dose naltrexone for her husband who had MS. And she was asking me, what do you think about naltrexone? So I had some familiarity with it and said, well, it can't do any harm. Um, so why not try it? And she did. And it really helped and was uh, very beneficial in uh, halting the progression of, of, of MS for her husband. So, um, and it was really, that was one of the triggers that got me started using low-dose naltrexone. It wasn't anything to do with my own creativity or anything like that. It was uh, by word of mouth, as it turns out, from my sister, uh, from, from something completely different. So when I started using it, um, I just happened to use it for somebody. Uh, this is the first patient that I had treated. Uh, she was diagnosed with polycystic ovaries, had a history of 10 years of infertility, and previous pre successful pregnancy with NAPRO in our program. Um, but then she developed rheumatoid arthritis and was wanting to get pregnant again. And she was resistant to non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and was told by her rheumatologist that she needed methotrexate, but then she wouldn't be able to get pregnant. So I said, well, I think you'd be a good candidate for naltrexone. Now, it hadn't dawned on me at that time, uh, as far as I can recall, that, that we, I wasn't really using it as fertility treatment. I was just interested in her rheumatoid and thought, well, uh, let's, let's do that and then stop the naltrexone when you're pregnant because I didn't know what effect it would have during pregnancy. Well, we put her on it. She had a rapid 80% improvement in her symptoms, had no side effects, and she conceived within two cycles. Um, and it took me a while to figure out, well, maybe the naltrexone had something to do with her getting pregnant so much quicker again the, the next time around. Um, but it was from things like that and for, then from observing, well, she had all these negative symptoms and they got better. So when other people presented with just PMS, I said, I wonder what naltrexone will do here. And I tell people, well, we're trying something new with you and we'll see how you get on. And it's from that process of trial and error, listening to the chart, listening to patients, looking at symptoms and observing different outcomes that gradually over the years, uh, it's got to the point now uh, where I do feel that up to 50% of people that I treat clinically benefit from low-dose naltrexone. And um, yeah, so this is um, a 27-year-old single female. Uh, she's, our, if you like, I'll, I'll finish on this one. She's our, our poster girl. In fact, we've, we've many poster girls for this because I have two poster people I want to just briefly mention. Aged 18, five laparoscopies, uh, uh, prolonged use of uh, hormonal contraception to try and control her symptoms of endometriosis. Uh, took Zolidex for three years, which made the pain bearable and allowed her to function, um, and she even had to defer her university studies. She had depression, she had profound fatigue, she had an underactive thyroid, she had anxiety, joint pain, severe premenstrual syndrome, which I'd refer more to as PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Uh, she had brown menstrual bleeding, and she was hospitalized repeatedly for investigations and treatment of her pain. So she started NAPRO in 2007 just for women's health. I put her on low-dose naltrexone, and in addition, I usually don't do just naltrexone on its own. I usually combine it with vitamin D3, uh, omega-3, and diet. And our typical diet is based on IgG antibody testing, or you could do just generic, avoid milk, wheat, and sugar. I'm getting the stop sign now in two seconds. I'm nearly there. Um, so she came back, and she said, it has completely changed my life. Uh, for the first time in a long time, I can say I have a life. Depression is gone. Profound fatigue is gone. Underactive thyroid, she reduced her, her thyroid medication. Anxiety was gone. Joint pain was gone. The severe PMS was down to two days, and it was mild. The brown bleeding was gone, and her pain was gone. One drug. She was on a shopping list of things, and she's just on naltrexone. Not good for drug company turnover, but very good for her. A complete transformation occurred physically, mentally, and emotionally. Um, and for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm a complete human being and not a multitude of symptoms. I was a helpless and a hopeless case before this treatment. 
And she said, to, uh, this is a letter that she actually wrote to the Endometriosis Society in Ireland talking about the benefit she had of this treatment. Uh, they have not yet endorsed naltrexone as, as a treatment for uh, endometriosis, but she's exceptionally uh, better than most. But I've seen lots of young teenagers get huge clinical improvement from low-dose naltrexone with dysmenorrhea and other negative symptoms as well. But she's also very grateful for me being bold enough to take a risk with a radical new treatment that no other doctor was prepared to do, and she's profoundly grateful for that as well. And the very last one that I'll close on uh, was uh, somebody with bipolar disorder. Uh, 28-year-old female, she was on lithium for 10 years, she was previously hospitalized for bipolar disorder, was trying to conceive, worried about getting pregnant with lithium and wanted to wean off it. And part of the treatment that I was putting, on, putting her on included low-dose naltrexone. Well, when she went on low-dose naltrexone, she felt so good, she never wanted to go on lithium again. She delivered three years ago, never had a relapse, never went back on her lithium, and she's maintained well on low-dose naltrexone. But as she was delivering, uh, coming up to delivery and everything, her psychiatrist was putting her under tremendous pressure to say, you really need to get back in the lithium straight away or you're going to have a relapse. And this is totally her decision. I didn't advise her, but she felt in herself that she had found something that really helped her to function better than any medication she had taken before. And she said, I'm going to stick with the naltrexone. And she's somebody who knew her mind and knew her body and knew what she wanted. And she just stuck with that. And her psychiatrist was frustrated and said, well, you're going to have your baby taken away from you after delivery because you're going to get a relapse and you're going to uh, be in hospital and you're going to be incapable and not looking after yourself. And she said, well, I'm going to take that risk. So I don't know if I would have taken the risk, but she did. And she's, re she's remained well on it. So um, bipolar disorder, um, it's another indication for it. I've seen lots of people come off ordinary antidepressants as well. So it's just a list of things that goes on and on and on for all the autoimmune things um, and now endometriosis and bipolar disorder. And um, for me, I think it's a fantastic discovery and there's no denying the clinical uh, benefits of it. Uh, although there can be all kinds of debate about the mechanisms of action. Um, it's, it's, it's a fantastic treatment. Thank you. Um, just, a, just a quick comment. Thank you so much for your presentation. And when you gave it years ago, it encouraged me to, to treat patients with it. And I think this patient was about 36 years old. But she had had one baby and then many years of infertility um, with Crohn's disease and had had surgery with one of our NAPRO surgeons, massive uh, adhesions. And um, I put her on low-dose naltrexone more for her Crohn's disease, and she had a clear colonoscopy. And she had pretty much given up on the baby thing. And I said, well, why don't you stay on the low-dose naltrexone because it's certainly helping your Crohn's disease. And she was pregnant a couple of months later and delivered a healthy baby. So. Okay, okay. I'm not uh, the boss here. I think Paul said one question, so. Um, oh, sorry. But that was a comment, it wasn't a question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I was just uh, wondering, you kind of alluded to a lot of resistance to uh, naltrexone in, I guess, maybe the wider medical community and uh, something about being a, a patentable drug or not being one. Um, I was wondering if you could expand on that a, a little bit and, and why there's this resistance. It'd be purely speculative. I, I really don't know. 
So I'm a, simply fam I'm a simple family is physician. It, I is describe it, is it how it works, and it, I'm not getting into that. <laughs> is it not a patentable drug? or, or there, There's a new company, uh, TNI, I think they're called, who have got a patent to use it for things like Crohn's disease. So they're trying to make it patentable again. It's beyond its patent, uh, but they have this on the low-dose naltrexone website. And uh, if they get a patent for it, which I think they have done, then it enables them to, I don't know, do more. They call these orphan drugs when they're beyond patent, when you're trying to do more research and publications for it. So their intentions are good. They're not intending to charge megabucks for it or anything. So there, there are moves afoot to make it patentable again um, and then encourage more research because a company can make profit from it. Well, if anyone does have speculations they'd like to share with me, I'd love to hear them. Okay. <laughs> Could I ask one more question? Thank you, Cole. Thanks very much, Phil. Thank you for listening to this presentation. All past conference presentations can be found on our website, www.ldnresearchtrust.org.